And let's take our Bibles and turn with me, please, to the passage that uh, was read for us this morning. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Sixteen years ago, this Sunday morning, I stood here in front of the church and preached to you all from the book of Colossians chapter 1. And I looked at, I expounded these two verses, which will come up on the screen for us, where Paul shared with the Colossian believers what his twofold goal was for his ministry. He wrote these words, I have become its servant, that is, the church, the servant of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, from these verses, we um, have, in a sense, developed our motto here at West Highland, and you have heard it said before, that West Highland is about making the Word of God fully known, to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, and West Highland is about making the people of God fully mature, to present everyone mature in Christ. I said to you 16 years ago that this would be the goal of my ministry here at West Highland also. And so for 15 years, this has been in my, in my mind. This, this goal, this twofold goal of making the Word of God fully known and the people of God fully mature has been in the forefront of all that I have thought about and engaged in and ministered toward. It has been a part of the discussions and the decisions that the leadership of the church has made. And this is one reason why this morning we are going to take a hiatus out of the book of Acts in this uh, disciple-making experience series that we engaged in toward the end of last year. And we're going to focus from today until June on 1 Corinthians, the letter of Paul to the, this first letter to the Corinthians. Now let me explain uh, why this. The church in Corinth was started by the Apostle Paul. It was planted by him about 20 years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This was a, a church, if you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians through, you will discover it was a church that Paul deeply loved. He was only there a short period of time, only 18 months. But in that 18 months, the city of Corinth was impacted by his gospel ministry. If you want to read an account of this, it's found in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Corinth was a port city. That meant it was a very, very diverse city. There were people from all over the Roman world who, who came there, both Jews and Greeks. A diverse city in terms of the many lang languages that were spoken there, though Greek was the primary one. There was a plethora of philosophers who plied the streets of Corinth expounding their various philosophical beliefs. And Corinth became, next to Athens, a center of philosophical debate. It was a leading center of commerce and, and, biz, and, biz, and business, and so it attracted people from across the empire. But the religious climate of the city was really what troubled Paul and troubled the Corinthian church. See, the religious climate of the city was leading people into a dark idolatry and degrading immorality. There were four primary Greek goddesses that were worshipped in the city. Aphrodite and Astarte, who were the goddesses of love and fertility and war. 
And then Isis and Osiris, who were the gods or the goddesses of, of healing and magic, of the dead and of the afterlife. And Corinth was filled with devoted followers of these Greek gods. It was out of this seductive culture of, of godless philosophy and, and intellectual pride and unbridled immorality and dark spirituality, where, where people were greedy for power, dedicated to pleasure, and enamored with all kinds of philosophic rhetoric that the Apostle Paul saw the Holy Spirit move in power and draw a number of them to faith in Jesus Christ during his second missionary journey. Paul's disciple-making ministry there was supported by a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, and they're mentioned here in this book. And later there was a man, and a man of great eloquence and intellectual power and incredible speaking uh, passion who made a great impression on the, on the believers there. His name was Apollos. It is believed that the apostle Peter actually came to Corinth at a later time, and he too had an influence in the church. Now, I share all of that as background information to you because the point I want to make today is that the Word of God had been made fully known in the Corinthian church and in the city of Corinth. They had able teachers of God's Word, Paul, Apollos, and Peter. But their growth into maturity in Christ was stunted. It was hindered. It was hindered by this seductive, brainwashing influence of the culture of Corinth. There was in the city this, this, this constant refrain, this propaganda that went forth every day. A certain worldview was projected into the city, and this was an obstacle for their growth. And over time, the church of God in Corinth was marked not by growing maturity in Christ, but by self-centeredness, by compromise, confusion, and chaos. The new disciples of Jesus in Corinth had, had set out to follow Jesus, but they were not being changed by Jesus in a noticeable way, and therefore, this meant that their commitment to the mission of Jesus had wavered. Now, news of what was going on in Corinth and in the Corinthian church came back to the Apostle Paul when he was now in the city of Ephesus across the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor, in Ephesus where he stayed for three years. Report, a report came to him of what was going on inside the Corinthian church, and this was confirmed later by a letter that was sent to him which had all kinds of questions in it because there were concerned people in the church who wanted the advice, the counsel of the great apostle. And that's what prompted him to write this letter. And this letter contains, friends, it contains a bag full of topics and issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. Paul knew all this, and so he sought to address these issues, to see the disciples set free from the, from the shackles that, that were hindering their spiritual growth. And here we are 2,000 years later, and, and, and this book has a contemporary relevance for us today. The cultural moment that, that they lived in is strikingly similar to the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. 
The spiritual dangers and snares that, that entangled them threatened to trap us. Their issues are our issues. Their pressures are ours. Their failures are ours. And their compromises with the world, which stunted their growth and threatened to destroy their witness for Jesus Christ, threatened to do the same for us. So as I said, from today until June, we're going to live in 1 Corinthians. We're going to dive into what I call gospel counsel, which the Apostle Paul gives to this church that had succumbed to the, comp- had succumbed to the world and compromised its stand and was now living in a state of confusion. And we're going to see in this letter, in, in what Paul has written here, that he calls us back. He calls us back to some foundational truths in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that our purpose as disciples of Jesus is not just simply to believe the gospel, but to live the gospel out. That the gospel of Christ calls us not just to salvation, but it calls us to maturity in Christ. We're going to see that that we must be faithful to the gospel by the way in which we live when living faithfully is becoming increasingly difficult because of the cultural pressures we are under. So we begin now in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, where the Apostle Paul reveals his heart. He reveals the heart of a pastor, of a shepherd. He talks about how he felt about, about them, how he viewed them. Now, before, before Paul even addresses all of these problems and issues that plagued that church, before he speaks to them and rebukes them about the way that they have failed, before he, he, he begins to touch in any way on the things that troubled them, what he does is he gives us three great truths. Before he challenges them, he gives us three great truths about the church. Three great truths about the church as it is in Christ Jesus, as the church is viewed by God. I want you to see, first of all today, that he he makes it clear that the church is comprised of those who are called by God. I want you to notice the phrases he uses. Look at verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, that's one interesting word, and called, that's the other one. That's the one I want you to see. And those called to be holy, or called to be his holy people, called to be saints. Now this word he uses a number of times. If you go down to verse, to verse 9, he says, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now go to verse 24. Verse 24 But to those whom God has called, look now at verse 26. By the way, you have to have your Bible if you're coming here on on Sunday mornings. And if you're not bringing your Bible on Sunday mornings, I'm going to call you out every Sunday morning. Don't be surprised if I start pointing at people if you don't have your Bible with you. You're not going to like me in this series. (laughs) Verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. You see the word? You were called. You're the called of God. This calling is at Paul's forefront. It's at the forefront of his thinking as he thinks about the church. The church is comprised of all those who have been called by God. 
Now, when we use the word call or call or calling, we, it, it can create a lot of confusion for us because of how we use the word today. If I say to you, I called you last week, or uh, thanks for calling me last week, we all know what that means. It means we had a telephone conversation with each other. But when I was a little boy, my mother would some, sometimes say, Johnny boy, I called you. I shouldn't have told you that that's what she called me. It's so <laughs> embarrassing, but anyway. Johnny boy, I'm calling you. And, and that was just simply her way of getting my attention. But when she said, John Richard Mahaffey, I called you, that was different. That was a summons. I was in big trouble. You see, we use the word call in different ways. And, and as believers, we use the word call. And the Bible used the word, uses the word call in a different way. We think of the gospel call. That is the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ is to be shared with everyone in the whole world. And what do we do? It's, it's the call of God, calling people, come to faith in Christ. Come to Christ today. As we witness on a daily basis and share Christ with other people, we're urging them to respond to God's call to repentance and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. God has ordained us to issue his call, and the Bible is clear that call should go out to the whole world. But that's not the way Paul is using the word call here. He is not talking about a, a general call that goes out to everyone to repent and to believe. Rather, he is talking about a specific call, a powerful call that occurs in the heart of those who do come to Christ. It takes place in the heart. Through the general call of the gospel that goes out to urge people to repent and to believe, something happens in the hearts of some. The Holy Spirit moves on the hearts of some, and the Holy Spirit does what we cannot do for ourselves. Something wonderful takes place in our will, our will which is, which is in bondage to our sin. Something wonderful happens in our minds which have been darkened from the truth. Something sets our stubborn and shackled hearts free and actually makes us willing to repent of our sin and to respond in faith to Jesus. In theology, this is called the effectual calling. That is the effective call of the Spirit of God to our hearts. And we have an example of this in John Chapter 6, you remember Jesus was teaching the people and he, he multiplied the bread and he said to them, I am the bread of life and he made it known to them that he could quench their, their hunger. But many people at that point began to leave him and they wouldn't follow him anymore. And Jesus spoke up and he said, no one can come to the Father, on, can come to me unless the Father draws him, unless the Father draws him, unless the Father pulls him in. Now, when Jesus spoke those words, he who comes to me, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. When he spoke those words, he was highlighting two important things. First of all, he was highlighting our inability to come to God on our own. We can't, we can't, we can't do it. Our hearts are in sin. 
Our minds have been darkened. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no way a dead individual can respond to the call of God. Our inability to come. But he also talked about God's work in the heart. God's call, unless the Father draws him. And this call is not just an encouragement that that simply offers life. Rather, it is a summons that creates new life within a person. Just like the words of Jesus when he stood in front of the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. So God's word, the call goes into our hearts. And it is, as it were, we come out of the grave. Just this past week, Andrew and I were watching a, doc, a documentary on TV about the late evangelist, Dr. Billy Graham. And the, the, doc, the documentary was filled with a number of excerpts of his preaching from the time he was a young man until the last sermon that he preached in New York City. And in one of those, as a young, a young man, there's a picture of him pre- preaching, and this is what caught my attention. He said these words. He said, some of you are hearing right now a little voice in your heart. Did you hear Dr. Billy Graham ever say that before? He pulled his, his suit coat back, the lapel of his suit coat back, and with his bony finger, he pointed at his heart, and he says, some of you right now are hearing a little voice in your heart, which is calling you to give your life to Christ. Now, that's what Paul is talking about here in these verses. He's talking about that call of that little voice. But friends, when we use the word little, we don't mean mean it's a weak voice. It is a powerful voice. It is a life-changing voice. Again, like Jesus' words to Lazarus. In trying to describe the mystery of this, And the power of it, Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus referred to, you must be born of the Spirit. And then he compared this call to to the wind. The, The wind blows where it wants to, Jesus said. Wherever it pleases to go, that's where it goes. You you hear the sound of it. You can feel the wind, as it were. You can see the effects of the wind, but you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going, he said. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I've reflected on this call in my own experience just in this past week. I've done it many, many times in my life, but this past week, as I read this text and prepared to speak to you today, I reflected on this call again. And I can think back to, I can go back in my mind to to a number of things that happened to me, and I don't remember the sequence of these things, but I know that they happened to me within a very short period of time in the year that I came to faith in Christ. I remember being in my high school biology class, and a a woman, a, a young girl in front of me began to talk to me about Jesus, and she said something about the virgin birth of Jesus in our biology class, and me wanting to look so clever. Put her down in front of the class. And friends, I said some despicable things about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But as soon as I had spoken those words to her in mockery, I knew in my heart not only that I was wrong in what I had said in in, in the action of putting her down, but that what I had said was not true. I knew it in my heart. I knew it in my heart. And then I was hitchhiking, and 
this older gentleman picked me up, he gave me a ride, and he, he I thought he was crazy. He, he stuffed these gospel tracts into my pockets. And he said, you need to read these things. They're all about Jesus. And I remember going home and, and trying to read one of them, and I, I, I couldn't get through it. My mind got muddled and confused, but I knew there was something important that was being said or written in this gospel tract, and I placed it beside my bed. And on a number of occasions, I tried to pick it up and read it again. I knew that it contained truth that I needed. Then one day I went downstairs into the, the rec room in our, base, our, ba- our basement where we had a, book, a bookshelf and I, I pulled this little red Bible out. This Bible was given to me from the Earls Court United Church Sunday School in Toronto. I went to Sunday school for one year. My name is in the front of it. It talks about me pr- being promoted from the primary to the junior department of the Sunday school. I went to that Sunday school for a whole year and I never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I went downstairs and I pulled this Bible out and as soon as I pulled it out, I began to cry because I knew in my heart that it contained truth. Now how did I know that? I hadn't read a word of it, but I knew it in my heart. And then in the summer of 1972, I entered into a number of conversations with my uncle and aunt, and throughout the summer, as I argued with them over and over again about what they believed, and they kept urging me to put my faith in Christ, something happened in my heart. And one night I prayed, and I started to pray for my friends, and it was right then that I realized that my heart had been changed, that my life had been altered, that I had been drawn to Christ. Friends, the church is comprised of all of those who have been called by God, drawn by the Father to Jesus Christ. Our experiences might be different, but ultimately they're all the same because we are drawn to Jesus Christ and new life is created within us. Notice again verse, verse 2, the, to the church of God in Corinth. Do you know what the word church means? The Greek word is ecclesia, sounds very similar to the Spanish word iglesia. It simply means a company, a company of people who have been called out, called out to assemble. The emphasis on the word church is on a gathered people. Those who hear the call and respond to the call are the church of God. And what do the called do? Well, look look at what he says. To the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord. Those who've been called by God call on the Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We, We call on the Lord. That is, we worship the Lord. And that is the proof that we have been called. We become a worshiping people. The church is comprised of all those who have been called, all those who have experienced God's grace. But I want you to notice now that the church is not just called. The church is equipped. The church is equipped with all the gifts of God's grace. And he mentions grace in verse 4. I I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. But he makes it clear this, this grace is not invisible. It's true that the calling and the bestowing of grace is an invisible act of God 
on our hearts, but, but, but it makes itself visible. It gets manifested in the church. Because he says, for in him you have been enriched in every way, verse 5. And here's how the manifestation happens. In your speaking and in all your knowledge, in your speech and in your knowing, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. God's grace is manifest. It's made known. It's made known how? In our speech and in our knowledge. And I believe Paul here is referring to the gifts that God gives to the church because in verse 7 he elaborates further and he goes, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. And the gifts that he's writing about here are, are those speaking gifts that, that have some, the gifts that have some kind of a speaking component to them. And this speaking comes from our knowledge about our relationship with the Father and our relationship with the Lord. It, he's not just talking about the activity of speaking and the activity of knowing. He's talking about what is being spoken and what is known. In other words, there's, there's content in our speech and in our knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says more about, about this and he talks about the fact that a person cannot... A, a, a person who speaks by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is in them. The person who speaks by the Spirit will say, will confess, Jesus is Lord. In other words, what, what, whatever is said, in terms of our speech, there's an affirmation of the Lordship of Jesus. There's a magnifying of the position of Christ. And so in the, in the use of the various gifts and the various means of service and the various workings of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is central. Jesus is lifted up so that when we assemble or when we connect with each other in smaller groupings, Jesus Christ and his Lordship is magnified and held up. Now verse 7 alludes to, to what the gifts are. He refers to them as spiritual gifts. The meaning grace gifts that are given from the Lord himself. But in chapter 12, he goes on and he explains a little bit more what these gifts of the Spirit are, and he actually calls them manifestations of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Manifestations of the Spirit. Now, we hear that word and we go, ooh, that's really creepy and weird. That's not what Paul is saying. He just says the Holy Spirit manifests himself in the presence of the church. The Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit gives evidence that he is there. He gives evidence of his presence and his power, of his blessing and his help. How? Through the gifts that he gives to the body of Christ, to the church. And one of the evidences that God is among us is that on Sunday mornings and in our community groups that meet throughout the week, the various gifts of ministry are used in different ways to build others up in the faith. You remember Jesus said that he promised the, the 12, he said, I, I, I'm going to return to the, fa the Father, but, but I'm not going to leave you here on the earth as, as orphans. He said, I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm going to send you another counselor. Those are, that's the word he used. I'm going to send you an advocate. And so this is how the Holy Spirit manifests himself in means of comfort and counsel to the church. One of the important things we need to understand is that the ministry of Jesus is not finished. 
Now his work, his salvation work of dying on the cross for our sins, that is finished. He said that on the cross. It is finished. That work of Jesus is done, finished, once for all. There's nothing we can do to add to the salvation work of Jesus. But the ministry of Jesus, of ministering to the poor and ministering to the needy and and, and sharing the gospel and teaching and, and reaching out and touching people and blessing them, that ministry has not finished. The ministry of Jesus continues today and the ministry of Jesus continues through the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he gives to the church. Luke writes at the beginning of Acts about everything that Jesus began to do and teach implying that Jesus hasn't finished doing and teaching yet. And so he sent the Holy Spirit so that through the church his ministry continues in the church and in the community at large. And so the gifts of the Holy Spirit are simply a continuation of the ministry of Jesus among us and the ministry of Jesus through us. And so he says, you do not lack any spiritual gift. And later we're going to, we're going to analyze the fact that, that Paul has some critical things to say about how they used the gifts. But here he is positive about what he says. And he points out two things, two important things. One, the church does not lack any spiritual gift. Friends, every gift of the Spirit that West Highland needs is here now. It's here now. The church does not lack the gifts of the Spirit. Now, let me me just illustrate this. Last Sunday morning, we said goodbye to Lee and Cheryl. And every single individual who spoke up here at the front about them said a number of things concerning them, but one theme was constant all the way through, and it was the gifts that they used to bless the church. Isn't that right? Now, they were gifted naturally in, in, in the sense of music, ability with music. But their natural gifting from God was simply a channel by which their their gifted spirituality was exercised. They exercised gifts like leadership and administration, teaching, encouragement, helps. All of those gifts were in operation through the venue of music. And the result was is that you and I were built up and equipped to serve God and to use the gifts that he has given to us. It means that we are not lacking in any spiritual gift. I want you to ponder this for a moment. The church of Jesus Christ is equipped with all the gifts of God's grace that we need at this present time. And so some of us might have thought, well, well Lee is, Lee is, Lee's, Lee's gone. How, how are we going to get by? Well, I don't know what you saw this morning, but I saw a whole pile of gifted individuals up here at the front leading worship. If you look at the, bu- the, bu- the bulletin, which is available on the two back tables, you will see that Lisa uh, Schmitzrauter, who, who's just recently come onto our staff, we've now appointed her as the worship service coordinated, coordinator here because she is a gifted individual in that area so that everything's being cared for. You see that? Now that is the provision of God. You know, Luther, Martin Luther, the, during the upheaval of the Reformation, he wrote often about the the sufficiency of God. He talked about all that God does and all that God gives to help the people of God in the battle we have in this world. 
You remember how his hymn went? He talked about the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. He talked about, and though this world with devils, meaning demons, filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The, the totality of the hymn talks about this struggle and the battle that we are, we are in, in the Christian life, against the forces of evil. But there's this one stan, stan, stanza which we always sing, and sometimes we wonder what it really means, but he wrote this, that word, the word Jesus, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, that is to the demons, abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Hallelujah. The church is not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now the second thing he points out about the gifts is that he says, you do not lack these gifts, verse 7, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. In other words, the gifts of the Spirit serve a purpose in the here and now as we wait for the consummation of all things when Jesus comes. Meaning this, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are going to be needed by the church right up to the moment when Jesus comes. They are the means, the gifts, by which we help one another and encourage one another and minister to one another and build each other up as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus. We need them now. We need the grace that comes through the exercise of these gifts, gifts as we live in days that are growing increasingly dark before the coming of the Lord. So don't be afraid of the gifts of the Spirit. They're evidence that the Comforter is here among us. They are the continuation of the ministry of Jesus in us and through us, and they are adequately supplied until Jesus comes. Now, talk of the second coming of Christ then takes Paul in verse 8 in a different way. And now he gives the third truth, and the third truth is this, that the church will be completely sustained, completely sustained by the faithfulness of God. Verse 8, he will keep you strong or firm to the end so that you will be blameless or guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Now, this is a statement of great assurance. It's, it's a statement which is an incredible prom promise. You, you and I know that there are dangers and hazards to our walk with God. We, we undergo all kinds of trials. We we sometimes suffer and suffer persecution because of our faith. We are attacked by the evil one. There are tragedies that come to us within the providence of God that, that, that we, we never thought or planned for. And then there are those daily temptations that come daily, incessantly. And we sometimes fail to resist. Our sin, it's there all the time, isn't it? Our sin nature, the present reality. The Bible calls it the flesh, the sin nature. The attractions of the world are, are constantly trying to lure us, and the attractions of the world seem to energize our sin nature. 
And then there's the attacks of the, of the evil one and a further energizing of our sin nature. The world, the flesh, the devil. And, and, and they're all in concert with each other. That's our experience. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I wonder... Can I hang in there? Can I endure to the end? But here we have an assurance. Here we are given a promise that the church will be completely sustained by the faithfulness of God. God who called us is faithful. Verse 8, he will keep you strong to the end. Not maybe, not possibly, but he will keep you strong to the end. So in spite of the failures, he is always reliable. He is true to us, keeping us, enabling us, helping us, empowering us. Verse 9, he's called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are in fellowship with Jesus. We are in Christ. Of course he will sustain us. Just as he sustained our Lord Jesus Christ in the hour of his need, so he will sustain us right through to the end. A week ago on Friday night, during Seek Week, we had a small communion service in in one of the rooms over here on on the south side of the church. And there were only about 40 of us there, but we had a wonderful time of sharing and And a theme kept coming up as we were sharing, and it was how God has been so good to us, how God has strengthened us, how God has enabled us. And there was reflections back on the 50 years of our church and all of the good things that God has done and how God has brought West Highland through. And as Lisa and Ed shared with us this morning about the financial aspect of our our church, we see it, the faithfulness of God to us to the very end. I went home that night flopped into bed and I thought to myself 50 years of the faithfulness of of God surely that is an indicator that he will completely sustain us to the end his promise is that he will not abandon you no matter what you are going through we struggle we fail and sometimes we experience extreme distress a vexing to our own souls because We know how weak we are. And I wonder, and you wonder, can I really hang in there to the end? Listen to this promise. He will keep you strong to the end. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Those whom God has predestined, he has called. Those whom God has called into fellowship with his son, he has justified. Those whom God has justified through faith in Jesus Christ will be glorified. We will be kept strong to the very end. So brothers and sisters in Jesus, these three truths, these three truths that the church is comprised of all who have been called by God, that the church is equipped with all the gifts of grace from God, 
and the church will be completely sustained by God are the firm foundation upon which this church, upon which your life rests. It's foundational to everything. It's foundational to everything that Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians in the following chapters of this letter. So you have been called. So, so, so what does that mean? How, how do you live then? You've been equipped. So, so, so how do you use what God has equipped you with? We, we will be sustained. How, how, does that, how does that motivate us? How do, we, how do we respond to these truths? And as we journey together, we're going to unpack the answers to those questions fully. But I want to say three quick things right now by way of application. Three takeaway points for you to ponder, for you to discuss among your community groups this week. And the first is this. We are to live as the called. Go back to verse 2 again. To the church of what? To the church of God. The church of God. West Highland is the church of God. You and I belong to the church of God. We have been called by God. We belong to God. We are not our own. We've been set apart, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, we're called to be holy. Holy. And the rest of 1 Corinthians is about this holiness. With every issue that, that Paul raises, with every question that the Corinthians have that they want Paul to address, Paul's answer to everyone is that you and I are to live as the called to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, to not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, but to be transformed in the renewing of our minds, to go from one degree of glory to another degree of glory in Christ. We're called to be holy. And so right here at the beginning of the book, Paul makes it clear. This is the theme that he's going to develop. He's going to, un, he's going to address the unholiness in the church that is so rampant. He's going to expose in this letter our crass individualism. He's going to expose our, our love for worldly views and wisdom and all kinds of matters. He's going to expose in chapter 13 the lovelessness that so often characterizes the church that in spite of all of our talking about Jesus and serving Jesus, Jesus and worshiping Jesus, love is missing. He's going to talk about the compromise that so often comes in people's lives where we toy with idolatry and immorality because of the cultural pressures that are on us. So brothers and sisters in Jesus, I can assure you that these messages are not going to be comfortable. You may want to stay away or go online at 11 o'clock so you can edit everything that I say. You're not going to like me. But I trust these messages will contribute to your holiness. Number two, we're to utilize the gifts in worship and in service. So because the gifts are a continuation of the ministry of Jesus, there's no doubt that you and I need them in order to grow but we need a context, a context in which they flourish. And I believe that that context is the totality of church life, the totality of church life. What do I mean? 
Well, the local church, any church, our church, has two contexts in which we experience the totality of church life, in which disciples learn how to follow Jesus, to experience being changed by Jesus, sanctifying power, and to grow in our commitment to the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is these two contexts, this is what I mean by the totality of church life. At West Highland, we refer to these things as two wings. Two wings on a plane or two wings on a bird. Without two wings, we can't fly into the will of God. We can't fly in the will of God. But with these wings, we're enabled to soar and to go where God wants us to go. We're enabled, we're helped to, to grow. The one wing is the celebration wing. And the second wing is the community wing. And these are not things that we have thought up on our own. They're actually in the Bible. We see this in the book, the book of Acts where, where the church gathered at the temple grounds on a large meeting to celebrate and to praise God. And then they met house to house. They met in people's homes, in, in smaller groups. You see, the more I think regarding the gifts, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, about the purpose of these gifts, I am convinced that these two contexts need to be part of our regular experience as disciples of Christ today. This is the totality of church life. It's in these two wings of our celebration, Sunday mornings, and our community throughout the week, in homes, in smaller groups. It's in these two settings that the gifts of the Spirit flourish to achieve the purpose of presenting everyone mature in Christ. Later, we're going to unpack, unpack this, but the point, is not, the point I'm making is not that we, we need to use the gifts, but that we need to be involved in the two contexts of the totality of church life in order to benefit from them. And finally, we need to make growth our goal. God has promised to sustain us to the very end. He's promised to make us holy. He's promised to present us blameless in the end. And that truth should, mo should motivate us. God is 100% committed to your spiritual growth. God is 100% committed to you being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's 100% committed to you being equipped so that you can grow in your faith. Are you? Are you committed? It's not optional. God is faithful, and his faithfulness demands a heart commitment from us. So may God grant to us the grace that we all need so that we can take these steps to become mature in Christ. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your, your love for the church. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, you love the church and you gave yourself up for the church. And Lord, in our experience here, there is so much about the church that is imperfect, how we struggle. There's so much that can sometimes discourage us. But of all the of all the places, of all the, the bodies of influence and power, of all of the, 
the various institutions that comprise this world, there is nothing like your church. And we thank you. Lord, we love you and we love your people. We love your church. And we're grateful to you that in spite of all of the imperfections of the church, you are totally committed to us to make us grow, to change us, to equip us to be your holy bride. So Lord, stir in our hearts a commitment to commit ourselves to the totality of church life so that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I conclude today with these words from from Jude, words that are familiar to all of us. To him who is able to keep you from falling. Isn't that great? He can keep you from falling. And to present you before his glorious presence without fault. I, I can't imagine in my experience being without fault. I can't imagine it. It's so far from who I am. Isn't that true of you? He will present us without fault. And with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.